Good morning, everyone. Good morning. What a joy it is to see some familiar faces with us this morning. What a blessing it is to have you with us. Thank you for coming today. Missy, thank you for that. That was great. Thank you, worship team, always, of course. And uh, boy, that just kind of puts the icing on the cake. Thank you for that. Thank you for being obedient to hearing the Lord and, and giving us those that beautiful song. That was, that was really awesome. Well, you've uh, maybe and maybe not have realized that the carpeting is in place and um, looks wonderful. Uh, it's so nice to see the room start to come together. And for all of you who had a part in this, uh, this whole work of this building, uh, we just appreciate that so much. So nice to be comfy and uh, feel the softness on your feet. Some of you taking your sandals off and rubbing your feet on the carpet and all that kind of stuff. How exciting. All right. Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be back together. Uh, Oh, by the way, um, those of you who may have not gotten a copy of this on Father's Day, I have uh, quite a few left. The Man in the Mirror from Patrick Morley was written quite a few years ago, been reprinted several times. It is a great book. I was telling the other group this morning that uh, uh, I know, men, you're probably sitting there thinking, I am not going to read a book. Okay, I'm just I'm not going to read that book. I, I don't read. Uh, it just it's just not going to happen. And like, okay, well, get it, ladies, come get it, um, give it to your wives, men, because they'll read it and then they'll tell you all about what you need to know. Okay, right? And they'll probably ad lib a little bit. Uh, they'll emphasize certain areas. They'll might probably hold pages open. Uh, let me read you this quote, that kind of thing. Uh, but it'll be good. It's really, really a great book. So if you'd like a copy of those, just let me know. All right. Uh, yes, yeah, so the new carpet's in place. I uh, mentioned last week we want to start communion again. That'll be on our second Sundays. That'll happen the 9th of August. And so uh, make your hearts prepared even now. This is one of the two ordinances the Lord gave to us, baptism being one, uh, to the second one, the Lord's table. And so we want to do this as often as we can in remembrance of him. right? And we've not been able to do that. So we're not going to pass out plates. We're going to have the little cups, the, the little individually sealed cups. They'll be in the back. You can pick those up as you come in. You'll dispose of them as you leave, and uh, nobody else will touch it, okay? So that's the plan for that day. Those of you who are going to be at home, and by the way, welcome. We're so glad to have you by Facebook and also by YouTube. Uh, it's wonderful to have you with us. Uh, those of you that are going to be at home that day, uh, make sure you just prepare yourself something on August the 9th, okay? We'll talk about that again the next couple weeks just to keep it in our minds. For those of you who are members, and this is for you at home as well, uh, and you're welcome always, even if you're not a member, to join in with Zoom. There's going to be a business meeting, a quarterly meeting, today at 1 o'clock. So hopefully you've got the link that Brother Neil sent out, our treasurer. Uh, You have that availability to uh, either dial in by phone or you can go by video at 1 p.m. today. Okay. And again, can I say thank you? Uh, I've already done this in the past, but thank you to those of you who have been so faithful in continuing your gifts to the Lord. When this all began, uh, the crisis began, we were somewhat a little uncertain as to what was going to happen financially, but you rose to the occasion, and you have been doing that. I I don't know what the bottom line is. I was saying that this morning. Right now, financially, we'll find that out later, Uh, but what I do know is the lights are still on, right? Praise the Lord. Uh, We're still here. Uh, Nobody's come to knock the building down, that kind of thing. And uh, God is good because he works through his faithful people. So thank you for your diligence and your giving and your willingness to serve the Lord in that way. Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll get started on our, our message today. Lord, we come to you again thankful 
full of thankfulness, not just because you've commanded us, but because it is in our hearts to be thankful because you've rescued us. You've set us free from the dominion of darkness and we are eternally and forever grateful to you for thinking enough about us that you would come to this earth as messed up as the world is to make a way for us to have life and eternal life with you. Lord, thank you that you've paid the debt of sinful man. Thank you that you have given to us your spirit, given us the ability to think rightly, to think appropriately, to understand and to know truth that comes from you. And so, Lord, we worship you today. And as we go through our third part of our little mini-series here, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, that we might hear you this morning, that you'd help me to be clear, that you'd use my mouth and my heart and my mind and what I've put together this week for your glory. Lord, I know that what I've done is not perfect, but you are perfect. And so we rely on everything that you are and who you are and what you've done in our lives. So thank you for the blessings of this life. And so we ask you to open us now that we might hear you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't it great to be a Christian? I mean, really, it's just absolutely awesome, isn't it? Uh, My wife and I were listening to a video the other day of a guy who was talking about for lack of better words, sales pitches, and I was really good. I mean, he was talking about Apple computers and how Apple made such a difference in the computer market because of what they did, how they marketed themselves. They weren't just selling a computer, they were selling an idea. They were selling a concept. They were selling something that people could identify with. And as I thought about that, as the guy was speaking, I thought, I wonder how that works spiritually. And I started thinking some thoughts, and I wrote them down. I just want to write the, read these to you. Uh, in light of being a Christian. If you want a life of continual peace internally, a life without any trouble continually of the soul I'm talking about, and, and not being controlled by fear, or experience inner joy and contentment that you never thought possible, if that's what you're longing for, and if you're longing to be free from the internal bondage of even material debt. I'm not talking about not using credit cards and not having loans and that kind of thing. I'm talking about the bondage internally, emotionally, that life can throw at us sometimes and be satisfied with everything that you have in this life because we are blessed people, aren't we? Would you agree with that? We're blessed people to have relationships that are lifelong and satisfying to know that you have a brother or sister that truly loves you and cares about you, to have a plan to know how to raise your kids spiritually, to be godly and to enjoy spiritual health in this life and to know how your kids can be the best people on the planet. And boy, do I have something special for you. And I think we could make the list a lot longer, couldn't, couldn't we? But if we think of the Christian life in light of those things, those truths, to be who would not want to be a Christian? Who would want to not who would not want to have the blessings of what the Christian life is all about when God has given us so much? So that's kind of my little sales pitch this morning. If you want the best life, and I'm not talking about prosperity theology, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an internal joy of knowing that your soul is safe with God, then you need to be a Christian. You need to surrender your life to Christ because he will make that happen. You won't be problem free, but he'll give you joy like you've never experienced before. 
All right, well, let's get into our message today. We are on the third part, the final part of our mini-series, and it's just that. It's a mini-series. This was taken from two verses in Matthew chapter 5 as we're listening to Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount as people are gathered around him and he's honing them back in. He's reeling them back in into what God really intentioned for his people because they had gotten so lost, and a lot of that came directly from the religious leaders. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So this is a mini-series on God's view of marriage. This is part three, and today, as I've been promising you the last couple weeks, we're going to talk about God's concession of divorce. Okay, God's concession of divorce. And you might say, well, why, why this subject in our troublesome days? You know, so many are preaching and teaching about the various things that are going on and how I'm supposed to deal with my life right now and get through the turmoils, the chaos and the pandemic and all of that kind of thing. Uh, Well, I think if you think with me for a minute, you're going to understand how this really does fit. Uh, These are very unprecedented days. We have not had a time in the history of the world like what we're experiencing right now globally. You agree with that? It really is true, isn't it? I mean, we are facing things that... Uh, People ahead of us in their challenges have never had to face. And we're living through a lot of that. I mean, but let's just talk about one of those areas that we're being uh, challenged in. And that is the area of the family. I believe with all my heart that Satan wants nothing more than to destroy the work of God and predominantly through the family. It is the first institution that God created when he created man and woman. It is a holy institution. We talked about that last time. I'll mention that again here by way of review. And it's being greatly attacked. I mean, the the LBGTQ community comes out against the family and has redefined what family is. And if you look online, if you just Google the definition of family, you're going to see lots of different variations of what people call family today. And that's all a purposeful attack by Satan through unbeknownst people, sometimes through people that know on destroying the family. We're seeing the moral breakdown of the family, what God once intended for family to be all about in its morality. We're seeing the breakdown of that where morality is taught through moms and dads who know God and and want society to be a good place for their children to live. We're, We're really just seeing the antithesis of everything that God intended for the family. One man for one woman for life. And that would make up the family, the living in the context of the holiness of the family by teaching children what's right and wrong. Many people have grown up, you may be one of those who've grown up without a mom and dad in the home. Maybe you were raised by aunt or uncle or grandparents or maybe you were raised on your own for all intents and purposes because everybody was gone all the time and you stayed at home by yourself. I don't know what the situation might be. But uh, children have lost what it means to be taught the sanctity of family life and the holiness of family life. We are living in a culture where there are no absolutes. At least we know that's not right because to say there's nothing absolute makes an absolute statement, right? So the reality is there are absolutes and thankfully that's God and he's the one who's given to us the absolutes in his word. But the world is trying to take away the absolutes of what God intended for the family specifically as we talk about that today, what it means to have parental authority in the home. Just listening to a message last night and understanding that what Satan has done is he's started years ago with trying to break up man and woman. He's 
gone then into society and tried to break up society. Now he's, again, working overtime to destroy the family. Now, if that's not enough, he's convincing the world that just authority itself is bad. That the police are bad. The military's bad. So every foundational institution is being attacked. It's true, without question. The family is the place where respect is to be developed for one another, for humanity, to live in harmony with your neighbors. How are children going to learn that if they don't learn that in the family? Again, where the sanctity of life is learned and preserved. Um, Listen, families start with mom and dad. Amen? Families start with mom and dad, husbands and wives. And again, it's Satan's plan to disrupt that. It's his plan to destroy everything that God intended to create society. Satan wants nothing more in these days than to rid our understanding of what society is all about. If he can take away the definition of what has always been in God's mind and heart to his creation, what family is, society will go away as we know it. It will become something drastically different if it exists at all. It will be every man, woman, whomever for himself or herself. Every child will live on their own. There will be utter chaos completely everywhere because God in his intention said that the family is to be the nucleus from which everything develops. And when that is broken, everything comes unraveled. And so I think it is very relevant for our day And what we're seeing in this time as you pay attention carefully uh, to what's being told to us and what's being asked of us, uh, one of the main attack points is on the family. And it is to disrupt the family. And even in Jesus' day, there was a huge attack on the family. And that's what we've been listening to the last couple weeks. As he takes them back to what it was and what the family was to be in the very beginning. And so before you get too comfortable... Please stand with me and let's read these two verses. We've been on this for a couple weeks now. We're going to end this today and we'll move on, Lord willing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, as we stand in honor of the Lord and his word. It was said, Jesus writes, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Tough stuff. Very, very challenging words from the Lord. And it's challenging because we understand the frailty of our own lives. We understand how much we mess up in this life. And so when we get to subjects like this, it's very difficult. But let's just back up for a minute and let's remember what we've learned. We've learned so far from Malachi chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 16, that God what? Hates divorce. He hates it. That's what Malachi says. I hate divorce. And not only in Malachi 2, but he speaks against divorce in other places as well, such as Leviticus chapter 21 and verses 7 and 14. He's giving instructions to the priests of Israel, his people, And just listen for a second as he says, I want to elaborate on this. I just want you to hear God's mind for a minute in the purity of what he looks for from his people. They shall not, talking about the priests, take a woman who is profane by harlotry, 
nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. Now, the uniqueness in that simply is they were God's men who were chosen to administer the worship rights and privileges to the people from God and to in turn give back to God. And so God said, I don't want any impurity. And one of the things he brings out here is, a, is harlotry, that that brings impurity. Verse 13, he shall take a wife in her virginity. In other words, I'm not keeping her from marrying, keeping him from marrying, but she shall be an unmarried woman, never married before. Verse 14, a widow or a divorced woman or one who is profaned by harlotry, these he may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people. Okay, now I'm not going to talk about the right or wrong of the verse 14. We'll get to that as it applies to us today. But in the sense of God's purity for his leaders, he was making very clear something here. Jeremiah 3.1, God says, If a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Listen, will not that land be completely polluted? Wow, really, Lord? That's what he says. God is serious about marriage. God is serious about the family relationship between husbands and wives. Now, we've talked about, again, by way of review, last time specifically, why God hates divorce so badly. And we said that marriage is a picture of his relationship with his bride. First, the children of Israel, and that's riddled throughout the Old Testament. But then when Israel rejected him, he then created the church, and the church became his bride. That's the wording that's used. And we saw all that last time. You can go back and listen to those messages if you need to. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, repeating what the Lord had given in, the, in Genesis, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And that's where we camped last time, talking about God's seriousness of what the marriage represents. It is two people coming together, not for their sakes. Not so much, I should say, for their sakes. Yes, it's intended for a man to not live alone. And we have the beauty of the sanctity of that relationship in our homes physically, emotionally, mentally. We are aware of that. We enjoy it. But the real purpose of marriage is to be a picture of God's relationship with his bride. And we are to live that out in the presence of the world so that the world knows that there is a God who loves them, who will never forsake them, who will be faithful to them all the way through to the end. And that was the second point, that he made a promise to his people that he would never leave them. He said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in turn, in your relationships, do not break the marriage bond. Do not break your commitment. You are a picture of me. You are a reflection of me. You are designed by me to be an image bearer of my spirit through your relationship just as much as I am one father, one husband to you. Hebrews 13:5, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. Okay? So that should be clear for us right now. And as we've seen from the beginning even, when God made both man and woman in Genesis 2, both were stuck together. We saw that in Ephesians 5 just now. You remember the word joined. It's the idea of being glued together. Just yesterday, my wife and I were driving and we were kind of joking with each other about some things and I looked over at her and I said, it's too bad for you because you're stuck with me. All right? You're joined to me. And even though I mess up a lot, you're stuck. 
right? So that's really the idea that God has here, not in a negative way. It's meant to be positive. God blesses us with a spouse to be joined together, to be united together, to enjoy this life together. And that was both spiritually and biologically. That not only do we come together to produce children together and populate the earth as the Lord has commanded us, but spiritually we become one mind together. And many of you can understand that as you've lived life together with your spouse. So in God's mind and plan, marriage represents a divine reality. Love that phrase, don't you? It is a divine reality. It's a divine creation. It's a divine picture of heavenly realities. When was the last time you thought of your relationship with your spouse like that? Well, that's what the Lord says. It is a divine institution. In other words, God said, you may be thinking that you looked across the room and you saw that hunk of a guy. You saw that beautiful flower over there and you said, I got to know him. And all my heart fluttered and fluttered and fluttered and I just had to go talk to them and I stumbled over my words and you're thinking, that was all me. Oh, look at how the stars aligned. And God's saying, yeah, you just think that. I'm the one who created marriage. And if you're a believer, you understand better that God brought you together because it's a holy institution. And we saw that reality in the life of Hosea. As we used Hosea as an example of his marriage to Gomer, You remember, men, he married the prostitute by God's directive, and that was all to prove the faithfulness of God to his people. This became a living picture. This woman who continually adulterated her relationship with her husband over and over again, God used Hosea as a representation, a display of his own love for his people, of his continued faithfulness, of his everlasting desire to remain faithful, even when his people are not faithful to him. And boy, what a staggering thought that is, because you and I would agree, wouldn't we, that there are many times where we're just not faithful to the Lord. We realize in our hearts that we struggle with our faithfulness to him, but he is forever faithful, never letting us down, at least in our own, when we have right spiritual thinking. But now over time, the religious leaders had lost the perspective of all that, They missed it. They let it go. There was not the teaching like God had commanded in Deuteronomy. Remember God said, when you lie down, when you rise up, teach these things, teach my law. And the people had stopped doing that because sin progresses that way. That's a whole other subject. But sin will do that. It will give a little and it will grow much. And so they made divorce permissible, permissible for just about anything. No matter what it was. She didn't fold the sheets right. She didn't clean the dishes the way he liked. The dishwasher wasn't placed exactly correctly uh, in the cabinets, whatever it might be. Divorce was permissible. And there were reasons why. Number one, it's pretty obvious, they were sinful. They just had this sinful tendency about them, and sin always distorts what God says, right? Is that true? In other words, they wanted their sin to justify their decisions and their own emotional feelings about their relationship with their spouses. And to get themselves off the hook, they said, well, hey, listen, as long as we don't really do anything other than give a certificate of divorce, that's okay and we'll be all right. And the purpose was they didn't want to feel bad about themselves. They wanted to live their life the way they wanted to live their lives. And so they went down the path of unrighteousness and giving 
the excuse that divorce was allowable for anything, believing as long as I uh, gave her this certificate, then there was no foul, uh, there was no crime committed, and no sin, and the Lord will still approve of me. But Jesus comes along, and he seats these people together, and he begins to teach them, that's not the way God intended your relationship to be. In the beginning, God put you together for eternity. In fact, you remember he says this in verse 30, 28 excuse me, of chapter 5. He says, even if you look upon someone lustfully, you're already guilty of adultery. That was a staggering statement. Staggering, and we feel that. As the Lord just throws the truth in the middle of the circle and says, listen to this, boys and girls. When you even think in your heart in an illicit way towards somebody else who's married or outside of the context of your marriage, you've already broken the laws of God. Staggering truth. So now let's pick up right here with the second reason the leaders had distorted the commandment of God not to divorce. And this really becomes the meat of everything we want to look at today. It's because they, what they thought Moses had taught them back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So find your place there. Let me make a couple comments, but I want you to find Deuteronomy chapter 24. You can watch it on the screen here. Here's the idea. The thought was is that, hey, Moses was our true spiritual leader, and we would agree with that. So they hinged their thinking and their belief systems on what Moses wrote or what he taught or what they thought he taught. And keep that in your mind, what they thought he taught. I mean, after all, Moses was God's man. He had come along at the right time. He had led their forefathers out of the wilderness, out of bondage from slavery. He was the man that God used to bring the very laws into place for that society. So why shouldn't they listen to him? Why shouldn't they believe exactly what he had said? And again, that is very significant to think that because unfortunately too often people believe what somebody tells them instead of what the Lord has actually taught and what the Lord is actually saying. Too often, listen to what's going on right now. We're hearing people say all kinds of things about the pandemic, about the racial tension. And we've got, we've got groups believing this and group believing this. And it's just going on and on and on in a chaotic sense. Well, that happens when there is no certainty as who the authority is, Right? But when we believe that God is the authority for life and that this book is his very word to us as the God of the universe, then we have to step back and say, okay, I may hear things and I may even have a tendency to believe things, but if God doesn't affirm it, then I have to throw it out. I've got to look through very careful eyes with all of that. And so biblical teachers across the land, across the world, who truly know this truth about the Bible, stick to the scriptures because they know that the word of the Lord has the authority for life. Anything else is not going to help us. And listen, can I just say this? Is that when a culture begins to deny what God has said, it's really for two reasons. One is what we said about the Pharisees in those days, was that they really don't believe it's the word of the Lord or their sinful understanding just can't understand the word. But secondly, and I'm going to fault the church on this, the church doesn't teach the inerrant truth of the word of the Lord. I'm saying that lovingly, 
But I really believe that to be true. When men stand up in the pulpit and they give opinion and they give messages that are designed to touch the feelings of people and touch the emotions of people, and I'm not faulting that necessarily. There is a place for that because we are emotional people. But when it is promoted as something that just makes you feel better, then do that and you'll be justified because God has lots of grace, then there becomes problems. We have communities of people, societies of people that will say, well, why is it wrong for me to love another man or love another woman, even though I'm a man or a woman and that's the same sex? God wants me to be loved, right? God wants me to love. And if I feel love for this person, then why is that wrong? Well, that comes as a result of manipulating the word of the Lord to the point where truth is distorted. And that happens. And that's what happened in Jesus' day. And so he comes to straighten all of that out. Now, to know what Moses taught about divorce, we have to go back to this chapter. So Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Let me read that for us. This is what Moses is writing. And again, this is a retelling of the law. The law was already given in Leviticus, but then there's a new generation that's come out from Israel. They're about to go into the promised land and God is reinstituting what they need to know. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Well, why is that, Moses? He says, because she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. What had happened was is that the people had begun to believe through their religious leaders that Moses had given a commandment of divorce. We'll see that in just a second in Matthew chapter 19. But let's just remember God said he hates divorce. And God is not going to change his position on something that he has made as an edict. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. When I say something, that's what I meant. James 1.17, if you need a New Testament passage. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God does not change. To change his position would be totally inconsistent with his very nature and the whole reason that he gave what he gave, what he wrote elsewhere. So we have to ask the question, what's going on in this passage? What is really happening here? Well, Moses, the answer would be, is giving a writing of a divorcement or a bill of divorcement, as some would refer to it, because of one reason. Because of the hardness of the people's hearts. Now listen to that. The hardness of the people's hearts. Which is exactly, let's go now to Matthew 19, which is exactly what the Lord says as they came to try to trip him on this subject once again. 
So it's not only is Jesus teaching in Matthew 5 on the side of the mountain, but later the religious leaders are going to come to Jesus and pose this question to him again. This is a big issue. And I think that as some commentators have said, that probably in their minds, you know, John the Baptist lost his head over this subject of divorce when he came against uh, Herod for his adulterous uh, relationship with Herodias. And so they're thinking, hey, you know, if we can trap Jesus in the same subject, then we'll have his head too. But also they were concerned about justifying themselves. And so we read in verse 7, they said to him, okay, basically, let me ad lib here, introduce the, the thought. If divorce is wrong, why then did Moses, here it goes, command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Why did he do that? I mean, Jesus, are you going to deny that Moses is the lawgiver? Are you going to deny that Moses is the one who was of God, the son of God, come to give us life? Are you going to, excuse me, the one who, who, look, who God created and made as the, the leader of Israel? Are you going to deny that? And so Jesus says in verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, here it is, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, same thing as in chapter 5, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. And notice Jesus' phrase. Let's talk about this for a second. Hardness of heart. What is that? What it means is the religious leaders were so bent on following their fleshly desires, God gave a concession. That's what it means. They were so lost in their sinfulness, God did not change the message. They were more concerned about what they could get instead of obeying the Lord. Kind of like saying, yeah, <clears throat> I know that's what God said, but it doesn't really fit my scenario. It doesn't really fit my circumstances. It doesn't really fit the way I feel about this subject. And you can apply that to anything. We do that. We will say, many times I have heard people say this. I know, Pastor, what God says about this. And it, put whatever, whatever subject you want to put in there. But just in this context, I know what God says, but what are they doing? They're doing the same thing that the Pharisees did. They're saying, yeah, well... I." I know that's not the way it was in the beginning, but it's just not working out. And there are various reasons, and I don't want to oversimplify that, and I don't want to make that an unemotional thing. It is a very emotional thing. And many of you have lived through very difficult scenarios in life when it comes to this. But what the Lord is saying to us, He is giving truth. He is saying to them, listen, in the beginning, this was not the way that God intended marriage relationships to be. But instead of taking his word at face value as the Lord and the authority of humankind and life, they change it to fit what they want. They ignore what they don't like. And they recreate something that sounds better, which again is what's happening in our world today. We've got groups of people that are recreating God to be a different God. When you read the God of the scriptures, you find that he's very different often than the God that the culture promotes. 
And this just happens to be one of those subjects. So again, the point the Lord is making here is divorce should only be as a concession in one situation. In the case of adultery or sexual unfaithfulness. But that's a concession. That's not the ideal. The ideal is there would never be a breaking of the marriage. And you say, why? Well, that reason should be obvious from last week as we just reviewed that, but because of what it stands for. Your marriage stands for something beyond you. It is beyond you. It is the image of God himself with his relationship with the bride. So when there are problems, we need to realize that God is able to overcome no matter what those problems are, right? Do you believe that? I mean, think about how we operate with God. We will often act as if God has no clue what's going on in my life. We look at the scenario and we say, if there is a God, there's no way he could really be God because yada, yada, yada. If he were, this wouldn't be this way. And we create this God as if he doesn't know what's going on. Beloved, are we really prepared to say that God doesn't know what's going on in our lives? He is the very definition of everything of knowing what's going on. He tells us in his word he knows our thoughts even before we think them. So how could he not know what's tangibly happening in our lives? If we're aware, then more so how much is he aware? So it's important to understand, let's get back to the text here, that what Moses wrote was a concession. It was not the foundational plan. He was, Jesus was coming along now and saying to the Pharisees, listen, you missed it, God. Don't you do that. Don't you create something that God didn't create. You've taken God's word and you've created it to be something that God never intended it to be. And God recognized it simply because he knew there would be sinful people. Why did God do this? Why did he allow a concession? Because he knew that you and I were going to be sinful. He knows that about us. He knows that there are going to be sinful people who marry other sinful people. Right? That's what happens. You're sinful. I'm sinful. We get married. And guess what we have? We have a mess. Right? In the human sense, we have a mass. I was using an illustration this morning. Forgive the illustration if, you, if this is not you, but if you've ever gone fishing and you look in your tackle box and you pull the fishing line out to restring your fishing line, pole and somebody's been in there ahead of you like a little child and they've pulled the string out and you know what you have left there is a big ball of mess that you will never untangle. Right? Well, the same way is that when two sinners come together, they create a big mess. But God knows that. Listen, God knows that. God is very well aware of the sinful messes that we create. And so he gives this concession as a way to show grace to people who are the innocent ones. Where one would break the marriage by an adulterous situation God recognizes that divorce in that situation. So to turn someone away from your marriage for any other reason than sexual sin, and this is what I hope you've been hearing, is to cause the other person to commit adultery. For any other reason to send somebody away out of your marriage relationship is to cause that person to commit adultery if you have been the one uh, to do that other than adultery. 
And this is what's so tragic about divorce. There's so many people, and again, I want to be very sensitive here, so many people who have found themselves in this very predicament, who are now guilty of adultery for whatever the situation might be, or who had a spouse that became adulterers, and now they're the innocent ones, and they're wondering, what do I do? What do I do? How am I to live in this life? So the point, though, is that if Jesus is saying in the beginning this was not the way, why then did God give a concession at all? Why does he do that? Well, number one is what we just talked about. But secondly is because he wanted to be gracious to the innocent person. God is a gracious God. He is not desiring to just have somebody go through life in a challenged way to the point where they're not able to function. He knows we're sinners, and so he knows people struggle with one another. And so he instituted the writing of divorcement as a way to regulate the consequences, to regulate it. In other words, the bill of divorcement was a way for that to happen because it showed grace to the innocent party. The person who had not been the one who violated the relationship needed to be shown some grace here. And if you think about that innocent person who finds out that their spouse has committed an adulterous affair, if there weren't some way to clarify what happened in that scenario, imagine the feeling that that person would have or what, the, what people would believe about all of that. Who would believe the innocent one? You know, we're pretty judgmental people. We have a tendency to condemn people without knowing all the facts, Right? There's always two sides to a story. And some people say three. And that's true. There's always another side to the story. And what we need to know is what really happened. And so the bill of divorcement was a way by God as a concession to let people know what really happened. Otherwise, there'd be no way to really explain the situation. So to ease the pain of that innocent person, God allowed, keep that in mind, not commanded a bill of divorcement. And his commandment was and is, you are one flesh. This is the commandment. You're one flesh. I joined you together. Work it out. Don't divide. Don't break off what I've put together. But since you are the victim in this, I'll give you something that will help you reestablish yourself in life. That's the concession with adultery. Now, There is another part to this, though, actually a couple more parts, and that is the document protected the innocent person in a different way. In other words, it was a document that in the document it said that there was a a statement that was made to the people so that they would be aware that the woman was now set free by her husband, and by the way, she was not considered a harlot because that would be the tendency to think, oh, so-and-so sent their wife away, so she must have violated the marriage covenant. Well, that would be the case in a lot of cases, but in this sense of adultery, that's the only reason that God would give that. Thirdly, the document gave her legal freedom to remarry. In other words, the freedom to remarry, by the way, is always assumed in Scripture. When God says something about marriage being broken, there's always that assumption there that there's going to be a remarriage at some point. Not always, but there's that assumption. And you see that in various passages of Scripture. In fact, back to our Deuteronomy text. You see that in verse 2, Deuteronomy 24, verse 2. When she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. Again, it's assumed that this is going to happen. 
And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 19.9. She goes and she marries another man. So the concession then is to the innocent person. The bill of divorcement was a way for that person and others to know that this person was free to remarry because their spouse had committed adultery. They were the innocent ones. Adultery was the problem and so they're free. They have the ability to go. And then fourthly we could say that the bill protected her from slander. We've kind of already mentioned that which is basically what we said. No one can say anything negative to her. Oh, you know, this happened or that happened. Now she had a legal document that stipulated all of what the problem was. And so it all occurred out of the hardness of heart because people wanted their own way. And God says, I'm not going to let the innocent party in all of this be the victim of the society and what they think or even the one who committed the crime. I'm going to give them some kind of restitution here that they can point to not only to the community but to their own hearts and say okay I don't like this this was not my fault it was not something that I hoped would ever happen but this is what happened and so under God's divine concession he allows me to have this and that was really the point of Deuteronomy 24 the Pharisees though had turned it around and made it a command hey you don't like your wife get rid of her doesn't matter And we see that in our culture today, don't we? It's been going on for centuries. Well, what is it called? Irreconcilable differences? Something like that? What does that mean? I mean, people who've been living together for a lot of years have a lot of irreconcilable differences, right? I mean, I like blue, you like green. Okay. I mean, I've never understood what that means. You know what it is? It's an excuse. It's an excuse to feel better about the fact that that person wouldn't change because I wanted them to change and they wouldn't do it. And so we broke it off. Now that's a very simplistic look, I understand. But this is what the Lord is saying. That was his point. Now, let's just talk about this whole point 24 again. When adultery is not the reason. In other words, there are several things that happen. Number one, he forces himself to commit adultery, the husband does, because his wife will most likely go marry someone else. And that's what Moses was saying here. When she goes out, she's innocent, but she marries somebody else. Now she's had that right. But then if he says, I don't like her, then the first husband says he wants to take her back. God says you can't do that. Because she now would become an adulterer if you do that. And so it creates that mess. Secondly, he forces the man who married her to commit adultery if adultery wasn't the case and why she left. He forces himself to be guilty, making her the adulteress. Number three, he forces himself to be guilty. And so you've got this, again, huge ball of mess where everybody's led into sin. And this is the same in reverse, by the way. This is written to men, but this is also the same thing because women do the same thing. Look at the life of Gomer and Hosea. Again, this is exactly what Jesus is saying in verses 31 and 32 of our text. It was said, and when he says that phrase, he's saying, the forefathers distorted God's word. Whoever sends his wife away, let her give a certificate of divorce. In other words, just write her the bill of divorce. Doesn't matter what happened. She's free. You're free. Go live your life. Do whatever you're going to do. That was the end of it. But Jesus is saying, let's go back to the beginning, boys. 
Let's go back to the core. I'm saying to you, because I'm God, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, and that's just a transliterated, a transliterated word of the word pornea, where we get pornography, any kind of sexual unfaithfulness. You remember how the laws talk about bestiality? We even have that on our books today. Anything like that gives them a right to divorce. So God says anything other than that makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is reiterating exactly what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24. And the the Pharisees had twisted that to fit their word. And beloved, again, we do the same thing. We will take this subject and we will make it fit the way we want it to fit in our various scenario. And God says, I hate divorce. And I've not changed my opinion on that. And you are guilty of adultery if you separate for any other reason than you were involved in a relationship from your spouse that committed adultery on you. They went with somebody else. And that's what he's saying. Now God allowed the concession because of the hardness of people's hearts. The hardness of heart. It was not that way. Okay? So now, let me just interestingly point out um, a situation where God uses the hard-heartedness of people to bring out glory for himself. Okay? God will often do this, right? I was telling the early service this morning, you remember the story of Joseph, where Joseph was hated by his brothers and his brothers sold him into slavery. And we find out the rest of the story that ultimately God was behind the scenes of that, not the one who caused the hatred, but was using his brother's hatreds for, hatred for his own good. Remember Joseph later in his life sees his brothers and he forgives them and he says to them, hey, you meant this for evil, but what? But God meant this for good? Let me show you an interesting situation here that I thought about when, we were, when I was going through this. You know, when people sin... God is going to still and has the ability to create good from the sin of people. There came a time in the life of Israel when the punishment for adultery, and you remember what that was? What was the punishment? Stoning. It was death. That's how serious God is about this. That was the punishment. But there came a time in the life of Israel when that could not be enacted. It was when they were under the governance of Rome. And Rome said to the Hebrews, look, the one thing you cannot do in your judgmental laws is take the life of another person. That's left for us. And that's exactly why they had to lead Jesus to Pilate in order to try to get him on the cross because they couldn't do it. They weren't allowed to take the life of another person. And so that's why he ended up on the cross through the Romans. Well, in the same way, an adulterer couldn't be killed for a crime. So divorce which was on the books now as a concession for adultery became the only alternative. Do you remember Joseph and Mary? Do you remember what the story was? She finds out through a dream that she's going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't have any word of this yet. And he finds out though that she's pregnant and what does he say to her? First of all, in his astonishment, he can't believe it, he decides to put her away what? Privately, What he's talking about there, I'll write her a bill of divorcement, which was the only thing they had on the books. Now think with me for a minute. If that 
concession through the hardness of people's sinful hearts had not been on the books at the time, Mary would have likely been stoned, right? Before God intervenes and gives Joseph the message. But that was what was going to happen. That was what was running through Joseph's mind. You could be stoned for this. Well, I can't kill you because that's for the Romans to do, so I'll write you a bill of divorcement. Now, just imagine for a minute, how would the Christ have been born if Mary had been stoned? You say, what's the point? I'm not giving an allowance for any of this, and I'm not trying to befuddle something here. I'm simply saying, through the hard-heartedness of people, God has the ability to transform things and make something good from it. I want you to hear that. Because as messed up as your marital relationship may be or may have been, what we're going to find out is that God has the ability to take that mess, take the mistakes, take all of the scenarios that have happened and still bring good in your life from it. Okay, just hold on to that thought. We'll get to that in just a minute more clearly as we get to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. So now, let's get back to Jesus here. When the disciples heard Jesus is teaching on the subject of marriage and they were absorbing all of this, we read this earlier, but look at verse 10 again in Matthew 19. They said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, then it's better not to get married. Right? I mean, they were getting it. They were getting the seriousness of what God was saying about how holy marriage is. And he's saying, you're exactly right, boys. When you take that pretty little flower to be your wife, you better be serious about it. You better hold on to that because your holy father, your heavenly father, considers you stuck. You are joined in his eyes. You are glued together for life. And so they say, whew, man, when I go to the pastor for premarital counseling, I better be serious about this. Yeah. That's why I tell a lot of young couples that come to me, I say, if I can talk you out of this, I'm going to do my best. Because I know after studying the word of the Lord, as you're hearing now, that this is the seriousness with which God holds marriage in his heart. It is a holy institution. And God says, I hate it. When you break it, I'll allow it as a concession under one thing, and that is adultery. You say, well, now what about other ways? Well, yeah, death, that's one. Spouse is not coming back. That's very clear in Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 7. This subject of adultery now. And God's saying, look, any other reason, you create a huge mess. It's already going to be a mess with the adultery situation, but we can work, work that out. And so you're sitting here this morning, and you're saying, well... I've read in the Bible that there are some other concessions, I think, in 1 Corinthians 7. So, yeah, you're right. Let's go to that uh, because there is some revelation here that Paul gives us that the Lord taught on but also did not teach on. Now, that doesn't mean that it wasn't divinely inspired, but it was certainly, it was just not something that the Lord clearly spoke about, at least in his writing. So Paul is giving further clarity on the subject. Now, I like to think of these as answers to the questions people have that the Lord didn't cover. These are kind of like the what if questions. Well, my situation wasn't death. My situation wasn't adultery. So what does that mean for me? 
Well, let's look. So Paul's going to address four different groups. We're only going to talk about two of them. Number one are the virgins. He brings this up in chapter 7. Virgins are those women never married. They've never had a sexual relationship with a man, their husband, so they're recognized as virgins. They're the married. We know who those folks are. Pretty obvious. We know who the widowed are. Those who were once married, their spouses died. But then he gives us a fourth group. He refers to them as the unmarried. Well, who is that? Well, they're not virgins because that's clear. They're not widowed. They're not have lost a spouse in, in death. They are people who were once married but now have been divorced. In the society, there were these people. How about that? In the year 2020, we got people like this. In the year of, of our Lord back then, there were people like this. We only were concerned ourselves this morning with the two groups. Look at the first one, the married. He says this in verse 10 of chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. To the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. In other words, this is what the Lord already taught you. That the wife should not leave her husband. Okay, there it is. Boom. Clarified again. God taught you this, you know this. But notice verse 11. But if she does leave... What? Yeah, God knows we're stiff-necked and rebellious, and that's going to happen. So if she does leave, here are your options. She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. In other words, you know the instruction of the Lord. If you're married, don't divorce but if you do because your hearts are hardened, it's for, if it's for any other reason other than adultery, here are your options. Number one, you stay unmarried the rest of your life or you be reconciled to the husband that you left. When those are the two situations, when it's not adultery or some sexual sin, you have two options. And this is what the Lord taught. Stay married or be reconciled. And you say, that's it? Those are my options? Well, what do I do? Because that doesn't fit me either. Well, here's question number one that Paul answers. What if I wasn't a Christian when that happened? Well, that's a non-issue because now you are a Christian, hopefully, right? And as a Christian, you're under these commandments from the Lord. So these are your options, unless you deny the faith. And let's just be honest with what that means. That becomes an apostate, a person who knows the truth, but walks away. And eternity does not go well for people who are apostates. And that's very clear in the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy 13, Jesus affirms it in Matthew 13. Again, Paul affirms it in Romans 1. People who know the truth of what God has said and they walk away from the truth, deny the faith. I'm not talking about mistakes. I'm talking about denying the faith are people who have made a mockery out of the word of the Lord. So you say, well, I'm not, uh, you know, I wasn't a Christian then. Well, okay, Christians are under the commandment of the Lord. People who are not Christians are under the condemnation of the Lord. And we see that in this second question. Notice this. What if I'm a believer then and my spouse is not? In other words, maybe we were both unbelievers when we first got married and then I became a Christian, but my, my spouse is not. They don't really want the things of the Lord. Paul says in verse 12, 
other than the people who are in the first scenario, I say to the rest, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is a believer, an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. And so the answer to the question then is, if you're married to an unbeliever and they don't care about your God and they don't want anything to do with your religion, but they want to stay married to you, then you stay married and live out your relationship with them. Love them to the best of your ability that you can be as a spouse. My wife and I have had friends of ours that we've known just like this, and it does work. There was a couple in Lynchburg that the wife was very faithful to the things of the Lord, was at the church all the time, very helpful. Her husband was a really nice guy. He would even come every now and then for a little events, but he really didn't want anything to do with the church or with the Lord. But yet they had a good relationship, and she obeyed the commandment, and she stayed with him. As far as I know, they're still together. I have another friend of mine that has been married to uh, an unbelieving spouse for many, many, many years. And it's been extremely challenging because there is no mutual connection spiritually, but they love one another and the unbeliever wants to stay in the relationship and so they stay. And they've lived their lives that way together. And you say, well, why would I stay with them? It's going to be too hard. I mean, I love God and I want to do the things of God and they don't want things of God and it's just going to be tragic. I mean, what if they even say to you, you know, you go and you do your own thing, but I don't want to do that. Look what Paul says about why you are to stay with them. Here's the reason. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, The blessings that you receive as a child of God will be passed on to your unbelieving spouse. This is not talking about salvation. It doesn't mean that they're just going to by default become saved people or born again people because you're born again. It doesn't work that way. Every person has to come to the saving knowledge of Christ, right? Every person has to trust Jesus themselves for their Savior as their savior. So he's not talking about that. That would just violate all of scripture if that were the case. What the Lord is saying though is that God will extend his grace to that unbelieving spouse because of you. Because of his love for you. And that will extend even to the children. They will receive the grace and the honor of the Lord because of you. So that's why you stay with them. If you're not an influence in their life and they want to stay in the relationship, what's going to happen to them? And by the way, what will they think of your God? If you all of a sudden say to them, oh, I don't want to be married to you anymore because you don't love my God. But they want to stay in the relationship. They're going to say, well, what is that? What kind of holy God is that if you're going to walk away from me? You see how that will be drastic and negative in its consequences to that person? And so that's why God wants you to stay together. All right, here's the final question here. What if my unbelieving spouse wants out? What if they want out? Verse 15. If the unbelieving one leaves, then let him leave. If they want out, then let him go. You hear that? If the unbeliever wants out, let him go. For the brother or sister and that's talking about God's children, is not under bondage in such cases. 
because God has called us to peace. In other words, when the marriage bond is broken because they want out, let them go. And you, by the way, are free to remarry because anytime God says the marriage bond is broken, then you're free to remarry. And we only have a couple instances here. Why is that? Why are we free to remarry? Because again, the one who is left is under the judgment of God already. This doesn't apply to them. They are under the condemnation of a life that has no relationship with the Savior. Therefore, when they leave, they're going to be under their own demise and God will deal with their souls as unbelievers. But you, on the other hand, are a believer. They'll leave and not be under your protection. It'll be really like they're dead because that's how God will judge them in his righteous way. So if the unbeliever seeks a divorce, God says, let him go. And you say, well, why shouldn't I fight for it? You should. You should until it becomes apparent that it's just not going to work. And God says, let him go if it's just apparent that it's not going to work. You say, that's interesting, isn't it? Why is that? Because of what Paul just said in the last part of the verse there. Because God has called us to peace. He's called us to peace. We are to be peaceful people. That's why, beloved, we don't fight the government. That's why I preach those messages. We don't fight with one another. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? We are peaceful people. We don't create riots. We don't burn things down. We don't destroy other lives. We build up because the Lord builds up. We keep peace. And God's saying, listen, if your home is going to be more negative because your unbelieving spouse wants to create negativity all the time and create problems in your home and they want out, then you let them go. Let them go. Because God will work through that situation when peace is created that way. So don't take any of this to be a license to dump your spouse. That's not what the Lord's talking about here. The ideal is you stay together forever. Remember, these are concessions because of the hardness of heart. Because God will work through the sinfulness of his people to offer you grace when you're in a bad situation. Isn't that wonderful? You know, sometimes people will say, especially the feminist movement will say, the women's lib people will say, God doesn't care about women. Really? Look at the protection God is showing to innocent women. It's amazing. The amount of innocent people that God has protected, precious, precious women who are in bad situations. And again, this is uh, the reverse as well. So ladies, don't think this is just for you. Men, don't think it's just for you. It goes the same way. So what are the concessions? If the spouse dies, if there's adultery, or if the unbeliever wants out. That's it. Now you may be sitting here this morning and saying, uh, those don't fit my situation. You might be here this morning and saying, um, well, I've had several spouses. I've been divorced several times. In fact, when I look at my life, my relationships with people have been a mess. What about me? We might, you might be one of those people that's in here saying, most of my marriage is dissolved because we just couldn't get along. 
Not for these biblical reasons. In fact, some of you might be saying, I didn't even know these things existed. I didn't even know that's how God felt about all of this. So what do I do? What am I supposed to make of all this? Well, here's what you make of this. You have a Savior who came to give his life for yours. Praise his name. Can I just read you a couple verses here? Paul writing to the same church in a second letter. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, listen carefully. If anyone is in Christ, who's the anyone? Adulterers, right? Sexually perverse. People who have made a mess of their lives, but now see that Christ is God come in the flesh to pay the debt of their sin. That's the anyone. Look, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New things have come. Here's another one. Romans 6, 4. We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead, listen, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. As you look at your life and you're saying, Pastor, Boy, if you knew my story, there would be violation in God's court after violation after violation after violation. I'd be under the jail of God's penalty. And God says to you, listen, that's true. And that's where you're headed unless you trust my son to pay the debt of your sin. He came and hung on a cross, naked before the world, perfect, sinless, took all of your sin upon himself so that you might be set free to live with the Father eternally in spite of all the mess that you've made in your life. What an awesome God. Talking about, singing about an awesome God. He is an awesome God. I hope that you'll find encouragement in this because the Lord wants just that. He knows that you're sinful. He's not saying to you, go live any way that you want to live. That should be clear. But when you've made a mistake and you look back on your life and you see that your relationships have been an absolute mess, there is hope. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He came to give his life for you. And when God looks to him, he acknowledges that those who've put their trust in him are forgiven because of his sacrifice. He was the one who became the death penalty. So we have a lot to rejoice in. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this day because it is the day that you've given us life to live and breath to breathe and the joy to come and to hear your word. Lord, we bless you and honor you this day because of the word that you've given to us that would give us life. We honor you because of your son. We honor you because you see the depths of our sin and the waywardness in which we've lived, the mistakes that we've made, just the ball of junk that's poured out from our hearts. And yet you came anyway. And all you ask is for us to surrender our lives to you. So Lord, I pray for that soul, that precious soul, 
that may have been the perpetrator, may have been the one who was the problem in the relationship. Lord, help them now to see your amazing forgiveness. And Lord, may they just beat upon their breast and run to you for forgiveness and receive the joy of what it means to be washed by the power and the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this little series. As hard as it is to hear the truth sometimes, Lord, what you wanted those people in that day on the sermon, from the sermon on the side of the mountain, is to hear that they were wicked and they had ruined their lives by running from God's truth, but how you came to show them a better way. So, Lord, who would not want to come to you? Who would not want to be a Christian when you can take such a mess and make something from it? Lord, may you do that in the furthest heart today, and may they hear these truths. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.